Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, December 4th, 2014. Yeah, every now and then we have one of those programs where I have to play our standard warning. Today is one of those programs. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God to see if it actually squares with what God's Word says. And if it don't, you need to reject that teaching and probably not listen to that Bible teacher anymore. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a bad thing for that false doctrine stuff. God's word absolutely forbids it. Christ has commissioned the church, get this, to preach and teach all that he has commanded. If you think of it this way, you know, if you were to put it in the realm of authority, right? Um, we'll kind of put it in, in those terms. What has Christ given the church authority to do? Has Christ given the church authority to, you know, start uh, water parks, uh, you know, to preach whatever they want? No, they have a commission, if you would, to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Look at Luke 24. Uh, repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Yeah, that's Luke 24. Uh, Matthew 28, uh, you make disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching all that Christ has commanded. Right. See, the church is not uh, does not have authority to, uh, well, during church time, if you would, spend uh, time teaching things other than what Christ has taught. You have to kind of think of it this way, is, is that, Christianity is not a democracy. No, it, it really isn't. Even though many congregations are organized democratically, uh, Christianity is not a democracy. Christianity, each and every congregation that exists, is an embassy of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, Christ being the king. And embassies don't get to set policy. They get to proclaim it. Um, that's what they have the authority to do. And so when a church deviates from God's word and stops teaching what Christ has commanded us to teach and starts teaching false doctrine, that is an embassy that has sided with the enemy. Yeah, you got to think in these terms. And so, uh, you know, as a result of that, what we do here is we try to, uh, you know, challenge Christians to open their Bible and see if the embassy that they are, you know, attending 
uh, actually if the ambassador is doing his job or if he's, um, well, come under the influence of traitorous uh, forces, if you know what I mean. All right, so let's talk about what we're going to do here at uh, uh, today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. This is, we will definitely be playing our uh, our standard warning today because what we're going to be covering, and I don't even know if we have time to get to all of this, what we're going to be covering is just going to be all over the place. So we're going to begin, kind of yeah, try to ask answer that question that we were uh, exploring on Tuesday's episode of Fighting for the Faith, you know, from uh, that Prescott guy who works for Jensen Franklin, who's from Planet Sakers, Shakers. Yeah, he uh, he was talking about, well, you know, I challenge you, you know, that uh, after you leave here, you know, people need to be able to see something on you that says, you know, ah, you're under the influence of church. And uh, so I was thinking, you know, what could possibly cause people to go, Hey, yeah, you've been to church, and so you know I yeah, went into the archives of Fighting for the Faith, and uh, realized it's it's been a couple weeks since we've done a Heidi Baker update, and so we'll do a Heidi Baker update to see if this actually fits the bill, you know, uh, if you know, because I'm in the process of trying to find that thing that we would be saying or doing or how we would be saying and doing it that would alert people, you know, just walking down the street that. Hey, that guy, <laughs> he's been to church. And so we're, we're, we got a Heidi Baker update. Uh, we'll switch gears. Uh, we're going to be listening to Brent Luck. I can't remember if we've ever done a Brent Luck update, but Brent Luck is one of these guys who hangs on the uh, periphery of the Patricia King gang, and uh, he's talking about partaking of scrolls, you know, part, like eating them, um, which in a sense is kind of a biblical thing. Thing. I mean, yeah, there is a there is a Old Testament prophet who was told to eat a scroll, but uh, he's apparently uh, divulging the details of a direct revelation that he received from God while moving to Arizona. So uh, we'll t- take a listen to that. Uh, then uh, we'll, we'll, t- well, obviously, we're going to need to take a break. Well, it will take a break. And when we come back from the break, we are going to uh, do a prophecy open mic. We're going to be listening to Linda Heidler over at Glory of Zion, and um, apparently God the Holy Spirit is uh, commanding uh, people in the body of Christ to bring forth a new sound, uh, a new sound. So, you know, you know, this is one of those things where this is going to take some work. That's all I got to say. It's going to take some work and some creativity. But uh, we'll listen to the uh, so-called prophecy from uh, Glory of Zion, which is where Chuck Pierce holds court, and... Uh, See if we can make heads or tails of it so that, you know, we can begin, well, yeah, assemble the team, if you would, that, that will uh, need to uh, ascend into heaven, hear the sounds of heaven, and bring a new sound to here, here, here on earth, which I think is what this prophecy is calling for. And uh, then we'll switch gears uh, uh, just another time, and uh, we have a Perry Stone update. Perry Stone talking about Cherokee Indians... And um, and fairy stones. And you're going, fairy stones? What's a fairy stone? Now, if you're not familiar with what a fairy stone is, a fairy stone is a naturally occurring, um, kind of like, what's the right way? Mineral formation that uh, is stone-like in its quality. And the mineral formation literally looks like um, a cross. So they're called fairy stones. And apparently this has something to do with the Cherokee Nation, the end times, and 
stuff like that. So um, the weird, weird thing that we're going to be listening to here. And, uh, and then in hour number two, in hour number two, we're going to head over to Bayside Community Church and listen to Pastor Mark Matir uh, talking about God wanting to restore things. And uh, this teaching from uh, Mark Matir sounds, well, it sounds eerily like he stole this f- directly from, I think Joyce Meyer was the first person we heard uh, teaching teaching this particular interesting teaching. So, yeah, that's how we're going to spend today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. And since some of the things that we're going to be uh, listening to are just, well, over-the-top bizarre, um, it, it actually behooves me to play our standard uh, warning here so that uh, you don't hurt yourself while listening to this episode of Fighting for the Faith. Here we go. Warning, fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. You've been warned. So I was having this wedding, and and we had, we well we didn't have we shaba shaba shanda yeah 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 shaba oh shaba shaba wow shaba shanda. All right, this is our Heidi Baker update music. Now, what we're going to be trying to do here is um, see if we can answer the question, you know, what is it that uh, Christians should be doing that uh, would alert the world that, you know, if you were just walking down the street, they would understand that you are under the influence of church. You know, that guy has been to church. This is, uh, you know, we're kind of thinking out loud after hearing Ben Prescott uh, on Tuesday talk about this. And Ben Prescott, who now works for Jensen Franklin, but who formerly uh, was working for Planet Shakers out there in Melbourne, Australia. So, you know, he was saying he was challenging the people there at um, at the uh, you know free chapel that, that, you know, they needed to you know, have something that would upon them so that, you know, as they were walking down the street or, uh, you know, at the mall after church or at the restaurants or whatever, people go, man, you can tell they're under the influence of church. And so, you know, to kind of see if uh, this fits the bill, uh, we're going to um, listen to Heidi Baker. This is, you know, this is uh, Heidi Baker at the, uh, airport church in toronto the uh, home of the toronto blessing and um let's see if this you know fits the bill see if this you know would show ah yeah these are people who are under the influence of church hold on to your hat here we go i just had the i've been uh 
Well, I've been preaching for uh, how many years? Thirty something. A long time. Thirty something years. Whoa! And uh, I've been a missionary. Shunned I for twenty seven. So yeah, so Tourette's kind of the spiritualist Tourette's. Yeah, apparently this is. You know, God, the Holy Spirit poking her every time, you know, you just kind of, you know, like the Pillsbury Doughboy, <laughs> you know, um, well, let's listen to a little bit more of this. See, I mean, maybe this is what Christians need to be doing after church to alert the world that they've been to church, you know, that they're under the influence of Christ and God, you know, without a furlough and, uh, I, uh, whoo. I've been running really hard. And uh whoo, I uh the last three months have been the hardest months of my entire life and ministry. And so for God to just toast me is actually whoo, <laughs> very fabulous. And uh <laughs> And for this, she's getting a standing ovation. Maybe she should get an Academy Award. You know what I mean? And uh, this is without a doubt the nicest house. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's the nicest house. I just... You let people, like, you, in fact, you encourage people to be completely ruined. And uh, it's just amazing to me. I, I mean, it is. I don't know. It's just I've never seen anything like it. That you just, like, let people get toasted right in front of everyone. And... Again, you know, I'm wondering, you know, does this fit the bill? I mean, here she's, you know, praising the people there at the airport church in Toronto, Canada, that um, they allow people and, and, you know, encourage people to get toasted uh, right there in their presence while speaking to them. Toasted, toasted. I mean, that's an interesting word. I mean, clearly her mind has been baked or toasted. But I don't think that God, the Holy Spirit, is the one responsible for this. But again, we're trying to figure out, is, does, does this fit the bill? Is this the way to know, you know, for somebody to go, yeah, that, that person's been to church. You know, let's listen a little bit more. Oh, you're just, I'm going to preach. Whoa. And I'm going to preach from my life because, um, whoa. She's going to preach from her life. Whoa. Okay. Shabba. Because I earned it. (laughs) And she's now really flat on her back on stage here. Um, That's somewhat disturbing. It's all grace. <laughs> but what I have to say is some real. Oh, I can't make anything up. I'm snockered. <laughs> I, <can't, laughs> I can never make anything up. I remember 
Okay, help me, God. He is. That's the deal. I can't believe it. How? Oh, Jesus. It's on video, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It it sure is because I'm watching it right now. She just fell to the ground. Always worried if my university sees it, they'll take away all that work. Okay. So, all right. So, I think that's enough. You kind of get the idea here. So, the the question is does this fit the bill? Ben Prescott's looking for something that's on us that says, yeah, that person's been to church. Would this fit the bill? No, I actually don't think it would. Um, you know, you start behaving like this in public and, you know, when you like get into your car, you're going to get pulled over and they're not going to sit there and say, <laughs> you're going to get a D D U uh, driving under the influence of church, a D U O C. Yeah. No, this looks at, you know, this looks like you're under the influence of well, you know, alcohol or some banned substance or something like that. And so doing this would not actually signal to the world that you've been to church. The world would see this and go, yeah, you've got an addiction that you're going to need to get uh, addressed there. You might want to join a 12-step program. I mean, it makes makes you wonder. I mean, they've got Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, and then you've got all those different you know, drug rehab groups. I mean, is there um, a glory holics anonymous for people who are, you know, trying to get wean themselves off of the false teaching regarding the glory of God and the Holy Spirit? You know, it just makes you wonder. So, um, you know, yeah. So I, uh, I don't think this would work. I think that uh, this would not be the thing that people would say. Yeah, that's the person who's been to church. No, that's more like the person who. Well, you know, needs to get professional help, if you know what I mean. Moving along. So Brent Luck of the Patricia King gang, I don't think we've ever covered his stuff before. He's got a video uh, at the XPmedia.com website entitled Partaking of the Scrolls. And apparently he's revealing, you know, mysteries that have been revealed to him in a prophetic vision while moving to Arizona. I think that's the right setup. So without any further ado, here's uh, Brent Luck. Hey, Brent Luck here. Uh, I want to speak to you about something regarding kingdoms and mysteries in the kingdom. Okay. All right. Sure. What's your question? I was moving uh, to uh, Arizona just a few short weeks ago. Um, I had an encounter with the Lord driving on I-40, and uh, I began to see a scroll drop down out of Arizona. And this scroll was enormous. It was huge. So a scroll dropped down out of Arizona. Was Arizona above you? I'm a little confused. The bottom part of this scroll was on fire. I saw grommets that people were coming out of their portals and coming out of their Jacob's ladders, if you will. (laughs) So there were grommets and people coming out of their portals and their Jacob's ladders. Do people live inside of Jacob's ladders? 
I mean, are they inhabitable? I, I did not know that Jacob's ladders were inhabitable or that they had portals or anything like that. Hmm. Okay. They're trying to hook it with their praise and their declaration. And they were trying to pull it down. So they were trying to hook the scroll that was on fire with the grommets on it. With They're trying to hook it with their praises. Uh-huh. So praises have hooks in them or on them? I am a little I'm a little confused. But it was very interesting. At the top of the scroll, yeah. it looked like it had been eaten. Okay. Right. Asked the Lord, and I said, What's this about? He goes, The people who are hungry for the kingdom secrets and mysteries are willing to eat the scroll and partake it, consume it, so they can manifest it, not just trying to bring something down, but to partake of it, which we know the prophets in the Old Testament did. But I want to say this to you. So what does it mean to manifest a scroll? I mean, after coming out of my Jacob's ladder through the portal, I mean, so I chew on the scroll and then I'm able to manifest it. Mm -hmm. What exactly does that mean? Um, because I, I'm kind of at a loss for words here, at least in being able to picture in my mind what this actually is supposed to look like or mean. I'm hearing words, you know, uh, there's nouns, there's verbs, yeah, and uh, full sentences even, but the word picture is kind of a little messed up here at the moment because the scroll came down out of Arizona with grommets on it while people trying to hook it with their praises after they came out of their portals and their Jacob la Jacob's ladders. And uh, the whole thing about eating it is in order to manifest it. What does it mean to manifest a scroll? Would this be an example of being, a, if I were manifesting the scroll after gnawing on it, if I were walking down the street here in Grand Forks, North Dakota, would people be able to say, hey, that guy looks like he's under the influence of church? Yeah, I'm, again, I'm I'm just trying to you know work this all out. I mean, based on this recent teaching that we've been receiving from people via the internet who are supposedly Christians, I'm yeah. I just want to make sure I, I I've got the right life applications. You know what I mean? It's very important that we understand Zechariah chapter five. It talks about that there are scrolls and they're flying. Now, if you and I think about this, I mean, I can literally see this. Okay that are flying well first of all if they're flying um, unless we're an amazing reader and we can read a scroll flying up and down like a feather floating out of the air or even with some sort of uh, propulsion on it uh, we're not going to be able to deed it we're not so okay so flying scrolls do they have wings or are they propelled by jets you know if they have wings i mean maybe you can like you know grab like a bird net or something like that and like you know while the scrolls flying by you can just you know snatch it out of the air with a net and then once you know once you've got it in the net you can you know you can bring it down to a table and maybe you can like open it and force it open like maybe put something heavy on each of the sides of it so that you can read it i mean i don't think you're going to be able to read a flying scroll while it's flapping through the air you know what i'm saying that might be really difficult to read it so the lord is showing me how to land these scrolls ah yeah how to land them right Okay, so you're like air traffic control for scrolls. Got it. Ready for this. If you look 
about a scroll, and even it's very specific in Zechariah, talks about that there's writing on both sides of the scroll. Yeah. So for me, that shows me that there's a blessing side of the scroll, and there's a judgment side or circumstances. Now, I want to say this to you. Because mm-hmm. there's writing on both sides, that means that each side is of its own nature. Maybe they just ran out of room and, you know, they needed to fill up the backside because, you know, you know, scrolls are really expensive. I mean, you don't want to waste those things. Well, so by writing on both sides, you're able to, you know, save some money. I mean, God never brings judgment for destruction. He always brings judgment for restoration. Uh-huh. Tell that to the people who've been destroyed by God. I want you to hear that. I'm not a doom and gloom type prophet. So you're not like William Tapley. Got it. Not that what I am is an, an, uh, an encouraging uh, voice that's going to always continually believe that God is going to do something beyond I have seen, ear had heard. We're not going to do that. So the Lord showed me this. Mm-hmm. You sure that was God showing you this? We eat the scrolls. And I know, I know you're going to be shaking and trembling for this word, but it's simple. We eat the scrolls by faith. Not with teeth, but mm, wow. Yeah, that was so deep. It was unfathomable. Yeah. You eat the scrolls by faith. All I can say to that is Mufasa. Yeah. We simply say, God, yes, I am one that will be one of those that will consume the scroll. Be it bitter, be it sweet, whatever it is, I'm going to consume that scroll. And I'm now. Do they do they have like Chinese scrolls that are sweet and sour? You know, I I just have to ask. Allow that scroll to come upon me. Okay, you say, okay, Brent. Now, what are we talking about? Consume the scroll. What I'm talking about is, you by faith say, Father, I don't know what this scroll is. <laughs> I don't see a scroll. What are you talking about? I'm going to trust that you have a scroll for me that you want me to manifest on the earth. Uh-huh. You're going to trust that. Why should we be trusting that? Where did God say he has a scroll for me to manifest? Mm, I don't think Zechariah 5 says that. And so I'm going to partake it the same way that we, we have communion, where we take the, the, the wafer and the cup by faith. And we, we believe the, what the body does. We believe what his blood does. It's the same way with this scroll. Not only are you going to take this... So this is like an alternate communion service. The, the, the partaking of the scrolls by faith, communion service. And consume it by faith. But you're going to get revelation. Now, how does this revelation happen? It happens by praying in the Spirit. Do you realize there is no greater way for you to enter into the realm of mysteries and enter into the realm of kingdom, um, things that have never been unearthed is by praying in the Holy Spirit because the Bible says that our mind is unfruitful, but our spirit man is being edified and we're getting some of the greatest revelation I've ever gotten where when I spent hours praying in the Holy Spirit. For uh-huh. Yeah, clearly. I mean, this revelation has definitely radically transformed you from somebody who's capable of lucid thought and communication to somebody who's communicating utter nonsense and gibberish and actually having the audacity to blame this on God. All right. So I think you kind of get what's going on there. Um, Yeah, the utter and complete nonsense and gobbledygook. And yeah, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people 
who uh, watch the videos over at xpmedia.com, put on by uh, Patricia King. And this is what they think Christianity is. Yeah. Boy, we've got a lot of work to do. Ah, what a mess. Talk about a cheap knockoff. I mean, it doesn't even look anything like biblical Christianity. Okay, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we definitely have our Perry Stone update, but before that, we have a, a prophecy open mic segment that we're going to play from Glory of Science. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss them. We will be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> presents Church Day Select. Yeah, just up ahead is a path that will lead us to the main highway. Yeah, I, I hear the traffic from here. That was a nice little hike. I do enjoy this trail. It's just a simple three-hour hike. Hey, what's that up ahead? I have no idea. Let's check it out. It looks like a journal of some sort. It's really beat up. Should we read it? Well, we've got nothing better to do. Sounds good to me. Day one. Today is my first day of the Emmaus Walk. My church counselor, Gary Sunshine, told me that if I went out into the wilderness and believed and trusted in Jesus, that Jesus would come and walk with me and communicate to me. So I packed enough provisions to last me for a few days. Day two. Still no sign of Jesus. I've dedicated myself to meditating, to bring myself closer to his presence. I hope it happens soon. Day three. I think I figured out what I've been doing wrong. I haven't been trusting Jesus enough with my walk. Now I've decided to go to the deeper parts of this jungle because I don't think that Jesus would associate himself with just the fringes of the forest. I think he needs to see that I'm audacious, so I'm going to forget the comforts I've brought entirely. Looks like some of the pages have been ripped out. It doesn't pick up again until... Day 9. Today, my stock of toilet paper ran out, and still no signs from Jesus. I should have enough food to get me back to civilization, but 
I think that Mr. Sunshine will be disappointed that my journey wasn't more fruitful. I think it's because I wasn't listening hard enough to Jesus. Day nine and a half. I think I'm lost. I think I took a wrong turn. Everything is starting to look really foreign and unfamiliar. Day 14. Today, my tent was attacked by a bear and was ripped to shreds. I just barely escaped, but I'm going to have to start foraging for my own food. I can only hope that I find my way back. Day 34. Today, I came across an indigenous tribe that was building a large metal sphere that looked far superior to any military technology. I was chased by them for about 15 miles. I'm really hungry. Day 42. I don't think I'm ever going to get out, and I just realized that I don't think I left Mr. Snuggles enough food to make it for this long. So far, still no sign of Jesus or enlightenment. I'm beginning to think that Mr. Sunshine was lying about the Emmaus Walk. Day 88. I think I'm done. I've gone through months of hunting for food with nothing more than a spork from Chuck E. Cheese's. I'm not even hungry anymore. I don't think that's good. Day 102. If you're reading this, then I hope that you're not as miserably lost as I am. There's no way out. The Emmaus Walk walk is a trap. If your church even so much as suggests the idea, then run for your life, because once you're on that path, there's no going back. I can promise you that Jesus is not in these woods. I can't blame him. I don't want to be here either. I can't do this anymore. I give up. She must have died while writing it. She wouldn't have written... She would have just said it and then died. Well, on any account, we'll never do an Emmaus walk. Yeah, I hear you there. Wait, have you ever heard of any of the mega pastors doing an Emmaus walk themselves? You know what? I haven't. <laughs> Maybe the world would be better off if they did. for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. back 
Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that what goes on in the charismatic and Pentecostal churches isn't really from God the Holy Spirit. And that's probably a really good thing. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 13344 Grand Forks, North Dakota. Zip code 58208, and let me thank you for your support because we can't do what we're doing here without it. And uh, real quick, uh, every year during the uh, the holiday season, we have a bake sale, yeah, and you can uh, participate in helping to uh, meet our year-end budget by visiting fightingforthefaith.com, and at the very top of the page, there's a little link there that says bake sale, bake sale. Click on that link. We have Christmas decorations Angel earrings. We have a couple more left of the uh, ear, uh, not earrings, but the bracelets that my uh, my uh, mother in law made. We also have t shirts available. And uh, so, if you don't have your fighting for the faith paraphernalia, if you would, uh, then uh, visit fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the bake sale link, and uh, you know those make great gifts for listeners to uh, fighting for the faith. And, uh, of course, all the proceeds go to help support what we're doing here and keep us on the air. All right, moving along. Chief, mate, what do you want to do tonight? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. The laboratory mice. The teams have been sliced. The pinky, the pinky and the brain, 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 brain. Before each night is done, their plan will be unfurled by the dawning of the sun. They'll take over the world. The pinky and the brain, yes, pinky and the brain. The twilight campaign is easy to explain. To prove their mousy worth, they'll overthrow the earth. They're pinky and the brain, 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 brain. All right, what we're going to be listening to is the latest um, prophecy. <clears throat> Boy, yeah, well, that's what it touts itself as, as a prophecy from the Prophecy Center over at uh, gloryofzion.org. Uh, this is where Chuck Pierce holds uh, court. And uh, we're going, he's one of the 12 apostles on the earth, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, this prophecy is delivered by Linda Heidler. And it's it, apparently God the Holy Spirit is calling forth a new sound. So not only are, do we need to figure out how, you know, to make it clear to people just by looking at us after church that we've been to church. Apparently God the Holy Spirit wants us to bring a new sound to the earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here's um, <clears throat> Linda Heidler to uh, explain this prophecy she re- she received. 
There was a sound that came out in the 60s that changed the world, and it came out of England. It came out of the Beatles. There was a sound that they released that captured the minds, it captured the hearts, it captured the wills. They could direct a generation by a song that they sang. They could direct the world, the world, young people around the world by the choices they made, by the statements they released because their sound had so captured them. Now, they only had access to a certain level of sound. Now, I declare this generation is going to go up into a place in the heavenlies. They are going to hear sounds and begin to bring them back down that will not just capture hearts and minds, but will move the spirits, that will awaken spirits. Okay, so you're decreeing and declaring that people are going to go into heaven, hear new sounds, and bring them back to earth, and that these new sounds will awaken spirits. So are there a bunch of sleeping spirits around? Um, You know, where are they sleeping? You know, if they need to be woken up, I mean, is this the only way to wake them up with some new sounds? So, so, man, we've got we got our work cut out for them. We have, I mean, we've got to figure out how to, you know, make it so that just by walking down the street after church, people go, ah, that person's been to church. We've got to, uh, we've got to figure out how to manifest scrolls that we've eaten, and now we've got to come up with a new sound. Whew. Boy, have we got a lot of work to do here. And that there will be a power released through that sound that begins to come out that will transform the world once more. And I also declare that those that got captured by that sound in the 60s are going to hear this sound. And it's not going to just affect one generation. It's going to affect two and three generations. Yeah, this whole new sound, it's going to affect everybody, including the, the children of the 60s. Which they're kind of getting long in the tooth. I, I've i seen a few of them, yeah. As it comes out, because the roar of the Lord, the voice of God, is going to begin to be released through that sound that will cause the whole being to begin to shake and tremble with the knowledge that God is not dead. I- so this new sound will make people shake and tremble with knowledge that God's not dead. That's one of those sentences that's uh, like blue sleeps faster than Tuesday. Yep, noun, verb, don't make no sense. I hear him. I feel him. I know him inside me. Now we call that sound up. We call it to come forth. We call the younger generation or whoever needs to hear that sound. Now, what's the cutoff age for the younger generation? Because, you know, I'm, you know, I'm kind of pushing you know, the outer limits. I mean, I don't consider myself young anymore. I mean, since I'm like in my mid forties, does that mean I'm like exempt from this decree and declare thing from God, the Holy spirit? Because yeah, I mean, I, I'm not a very good musician. I can't even sing well. And uh, so this idea that, you know, I'm being pressured by God, the Holy spirit to have to go to heaven, hear this new sound and then bring it down to earth so that I can capture, you know, help capture like this next two or three generations with it. Um, yeah, it, it, that's that's kind of stressing me out because it's, it's outside of like my skill set. You know what I'm saying? And so I'm I'm hoping that you know that I'm like past the cutoff because you're saying this is for the younger generation of Christians to do. 
And, uh, you know, good on them. I mean, so if you're like in your 20s or maybe you're in early 30s, yeah, you got to get busy making this new sound. To ascend into a place where you are so full of the sound of heaven and the sound of God that you can't produce anything else except that, that it overflows. Those rivers of living water will begin to flow out and begin to touch the world. Now, Lord, we ask you for this. We call out for this. We are in desperation for this. Yeah, a desperation, yeah, for, yeah, you're actually in desperation to actually hear God's word rightly taught. You don't even know it. We see how that affected all the, the whole world through through those four men. Now, God, we call for your men, for your women, for your sons, your daughters to rise up and release the sound from heaven. All right. So you young people, if you're a young Christian, I mean. You got to go to heaven. Yeah, I don't know how you're going to pull that off, but, you know, maybe you can find a bus that goes there. And then you got to listen for the sounds and then figure out how to reproduce them here on Earth so that you can help capture the next couple of generations. I don't envy you. That's quite a tall order. And, of course, if you don't do this, then you're, dis- you're, you're basically disobeying um, God the Holy Spirit. That's about all I can figure. Moving along. Time for a Perry Stone update. I'm a nut. I'm a nut. My life don't ever get in a rut. The head on my shoulders is sort of loose, and I ain't got sense. God gave a goose, Lord, I ain't crazy. But I'm a nut. Is it wetter underwater if you're there when it rains? Is it shorter to New York than it is by plane? Between myself and I, I wonder who's the dumber. Is it hotter down south? Than it is in the summer. I'm a nut. I'm a nut. My life don't ever get in a rut. The head on my shoulders is sort of loose, and I ain't got sense. God gave a goose, Lord, I ain't crazy. I'm a nut. All right, that's uh, Leroy Pullins, and I'm a nut, and uh, that's our uh, update music for Perry Stone. Now Perry Stone, apparently. Yeah, he's found the prophetic uh, end times outpouring significance of um, the Cherokee Indian tribe and um, what are called fairy stones. Fairy stones are naturally occurring uh, mineral formations that look like a cross. Uh, but apparently, uh, this is, yeah, the body of Christ needs to be made aware of the prophetic significance of these fairy stones. So here's Perry Stone to discuss per- uh, fairy stones. <laughs> Yeah, say that ten times fast. Here we go. It may be because of fairy crosses. What I'm going to show you is basically found only in a few parts of the United States and the world. However, they seem to be found mostly in areas where Indians were, and they are what we call... (laughs) Yeah, uh, Perry, dude, um... Yeah, how do I break this to you? That North America, like the whole continent, was pretty much inhabited by um, Native Americans, uh, the Indians, um, before white man showed up. Yeah, this, yeah, the the whole, so for you to say, well, these fairy stones occur in North America, uh, only in North America in a couple places, but particularly where there were Native Americans, dude, pick a place on the map, okay? You know, like 
take your dart and throw it against the map of the United States. If it lands in Michigan, your, your dart lands in Michigan. You know there were Native Americans in Michigan, and if there happened to be fairy stones there, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. We continue. Crosses number twelve, guys. These crosses are actually found on the ground, on the earth, and in rocks. They're not carved. They're not cut. This is the way they come out of the ground. They- yeah, that looks like a mineral formation. You ever seen how minerals form? Certain minerals form different things. I mean, even water itself forms crystalline, you know, things. Just look at snowflakes under a microscope. Yeah, that that looks like a mineral deposit. Yes. Formed with great heat and pressure. They are a combination of silica, iron, and aluminum. There are three types that are basically found in certain areas of the world. This is fascinating. Yeah, it's really fascinating here. So we're we're getting a mineralogical sermon here. One type that looks like the traditional Roman cross. Yeah. There's another type that looks like what is called the Maltese cross. There's another one in the shape of the St. Andrew's cross. In other words, anywhere in the world, they're only going to come in one of these three shapes. The Roman cross, the Maltese cross, or the St. Andrew's cross. Here is where the story gets just a little bit more interesting. Really? Are, are you co-profiting with William Tapley? I'm, I just have to ask the question because this kind of seems like something he would be covering. You know what I mean? When people who have property where these are found begin to bring them out of the ground, they discover that there are five different colors. So? <laughs> Woo! Yeah, these fairy stones, they, they come in five colors. So? Now remember, I told you there were five civilized tribes. And five is the biblical number of grace. However, <laughs> and six is the number of the beast. You know, and oh boy. <laughs> this has to be prophetic. This has to be from God. It's a sign because five is the biblical number for grace. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. There are also five races of humanity. No. White folks. Uh huh. Asian. The yellow skin folks, Asian. The red skin, the Indian. The black folks are the African American. And the mixed. You're not hearing what I'm saying. Yeah, so what? That there are five distinct colors for fairy stones that happen to also be white, yellow, red, black, and mixed. Um, <laughs> woohoo! Huzzah! Hooray! Who cares? I mean, just because there seems to be a parallel in numbers doesn't mean there's an actual interpretation that we're supposed to be gleaning from this. I think you're reading way too much into fairy stones here. The job of a pastor is to preach the word. Clearly, you're off on some kind of weird tangent here. So God... When he allows at the beginning of creation for the world to be created. Oh, there's your tie. God made these at the beginning of creation. So this is this is this is direct revelation from God going all the way back to the beginning of the universe, man. Mixes this silica and iron and aluminum together, all of a sudden in the ground, without a chisel, without a man-made artist, are crosses. Yeah, it's a mineral formation. 
I mean, this. Yeah, have you ever taken chemistry? I mean, seriously. They call them fairy stones. That's just a tradition. They're crosses that come up out of the ground. Let's go back to the Cherokee, ladies and gentlemen. Now we're going to go to the Cherokee. Okay. And by the way, he's delivering this in a church. Between Polk County and Murphy, North Carolina, there are these crosses. No. It's a sign from God. I didn't know it until I went to the Cherokee Museum in Murphy. And I'm walking through it, and I come to a shell uh, behind a plastic container, and there's one row after another, after another, after another, with the story of the tradition of the Cherokee that God sent his son down, and they killed him. And there were little people in the mountains who cried, and their tears fell to the ground and formed the crosses. So, when the missionaries came to Murphy, North Carolina, and when they came anywhere where there were Indians, and they began to wear the big wooden crosses on their neck, and they began to show the crosses, they simply would point to the... My Lord, I hope you're hearing me. They'll simply point to the land. The Indians loved the land. Most of them even worshipped the land. Mother Earth, their father Sky. But when they point to the land, they'd say, God has put in the land the story of the cross of his son. And his son was crucified on a cross and raised from the dead. And if you will believe him, you can have redemption. And the Indians would bow down in many places and began to repent for just like God put the appearance of doves in a sand dollar, the appearance of a crucifix on a head of a fish, just like the appearance of a crucifix on the head of a fish. God allowed there to be certain signs in the heavens that point to him like a halo shaped like thorns. Have you seen it in the Hubble telescope? God, centuries before the Indians ever got here, when he created the heavens and the earth, when he knew where their headquarters would be, when he knew where their nation would be centered, he put the sign of the cross in the very rocks where the first nation people were going to live. Wow, we've uh, worked ourselves up into a little bit of a frenzy there, huh? Hallelujah! Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So apparently this is all just miraculous. You know, fairy stones were there to, you know, to aid the missionaries. Now, you know, a, a good enterprising missionary will try to find common ground so that they can share the Christian faith and the gospel message uh, with people of other nation, you know, of other nations and uh, tribes and tongues. But, yeah, to kind of somehow then turn around and turn this into a hallelujah moment because, well, there's five different color fairy stones and they all happen to match the five different colored races of humanity. And God put these fairy stones in the earth at the beginning. And the... Yeah, so um, this is what we would basically call a complete and utter tangent. And this is not biblical teaching, but again, Perry Stone is supposedly like this amazing Bible teacher. <clears throat> yeah, and you know, the question I asked earlier kind of stands. And the question is, is he co-profiting with um, William Tapley? Because, you know, William Tapley always, you know, you know, introduces himself as the third eagle of the apocalypse co-prophet of the end times. So somebody is out there co-profiting with uh, William Tapley. This sounds a lot like... 
you know, Perry Stone in William Tapley, they, they kind of cover the same material. It's just that, you know, Perry Stone doesn't come off quite as crazy as William Tapley does. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, sermon review. Guys, sounds like he's getting his stuff. Just plagiarizing him from Joyce Meyer. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Hey! Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. ThinkGeek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. to a Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. See if we can uh, make heads or tails of this particular teaching. Let's do this right, though. Wow, wow, wow. 
The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Bayside Community Church, Sarasota, Florida. Pastor Mark Matier presiding. The name of the sermon is God Wants to Restore. Now, it's true, God does want to restore. The question is what or who? And how does he go about restoring things? So, what we're about to hear here sounds a lot like something I think we heard from Joyce Meyer, which is bizarre, which would mean that there's like some kind of heretical plagiarism going on here. Yeah, false doctrine always has like a, a pustule that it forms in and then it you know breaks forth into the church. And so I'm thinking the pustule, the original pustule, goes back to Joyce Meyer. But let me go ahead and uh, kill the music here. And without any further ado, here is Mark Matier and God Wants to Restore. Here we go. What's up, Bayside? So great to see you guys here today. I tell you, I am so excited to be able to share this message with you. Thank you, Pastor Randy, so much for this opportunity. But before I do, would you please join me in welcoming all those who are joining us online and at all of our campuses? Yeah. Now, if he follows uh, standard seeker-driven protocol, the next segment of his sermon has got to be the stand-up comedy routine. We are so glad to have you guys joining us today. Well, I hope you all had a really amazing Thanksgiving. I know I had, I had just a great time. I was with my family last week, and we were in South Carolina. But let me ask a question. How many here are from the South? And now, before you answer that, this is not the South, okay? I don't know what this is, but this is not the South. The South, in my opinion, ends about I-4. And I have lived in the North, and I've lived in the South. And I know Thanksgiving was invented in the North, but I think it was perfected in the South. Amen? Amen. Yeah. Yeah. So I was in South Carolina last week with my family, and we just had an amazing time at Thanksgiving. And my job is always to get the turkey. And I don't know why, but for some reason, I always try to find the biggest one I possibly can. And again, I don't know why I do that, because those big ones, you know, are the ones that are always full of the growth hormones and have the two heads and the four feet and, and all that. But, but I still make it my quest to always find just the biggest turkey I can. Yeah, this is uh, standard seeker-driven protocol. You start off by welcoming everybody from the multi-site campuses. Welcome for watching. Yay, now stand-up comedy, right, okay. So I went down to the local Piggly Wiggly, and I'm down there digging through the, the frozen turkeys and trying to get my southern swag on, and I see this clerk who must have been, oh, I don't know, every bit of 10 years old. And I, I see him, and I'm like, yo, come over here, bubba. And so he comes over and is like, gives me one, one of those looks like, I know you're not from around here, so don't give me the whole bubba thing. But I'm going through the frozen turkeys, and I said, hey, do these turkeys get any bigger than this? And he looks at me and he's like, no, those turkeys are all dead. And I'm like, whatever, whatever. <laughs> it's funny, some of you are like, okay, now what is that? Yeah. Oh yeah, I got it, I got it. Well, hey, Bayside, today I want to share with you about the God of restoration and specifically God's heart to restore what has been lost and, and what has been stolen. And I know all of us here and at all of our campuses and those watching online, we have all lost something or had something stolen from us. And so I want to talk about God's idea of restoration. And we have come through the worst recession that any of us can remember. 
And so maybe you're in here today and that recession for you meant the, the result of a broken dream or, or maybe even bankruptcy. Or maybe you're in here today and you were robbed of your childhood. Maybe you never had any fun growing up. You were always mistreated and, and talked down to. Or, or maybe you're in here today and the result of a broken heart. Maybe somebody did you a great wrong or, or bailed out of a relationship. So God's going to restore a business that collapsed or restore your financial situation after a bankruptcy. He's going to restore a lost childhood. Hmm, we've heard this before. And if that's you, I just want to encourage you today because I believe that God wants to turn it all around. I believe that God wants to restore what has been stolen. Why do you think God wants to restore lost childhoods and things like that? Which biblical text says this exactly? I believe he wants to repair what has been broken. And I believe God is saying to us today what it says in Joel 2, 25 through 26. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And that's a great scripture. That's an awesome scripture. But how does God do that? How does God restore? And so I'd like to look at that today, and, and let's talk about how he does that. But before we do, let's try to understand God's heart for us. Try to understand God's, God's heart for us. Yeah, I'm, yeah. How does God restore what the cutting and eating locusts have eat, devoured? And how is that applying to us again? And to do that, let's start at the very beginning of the Bible, the very first chapter, chapter 1. And let's look at verses 27 and 28. I love these verses. It says, He created them, then He blessed them. And so we see right from the beginning of the Bible God's heart for us. God created this Garden of Eden, this utopia, this, this amazing place for us to live in. God said, hey, I want to have kids, and I want to create this ultimate Disney world, if you will, for us to live in. This world is free of stress and free of worry, free of sickness, natural disasters, free of problems of any kind. And then you all know the story. Adam and Eve sinned and, and they got kicked out of the garden. But it seems like from that point on, over and over and over again in the Bible, story after story, it's almost as though God is trying to get us back to the garden. It's almost as if we've lost our, our annual pass to Disney World and, and God keeps trying to get it back to us. We've lost our annual pass to Disney World. You are aware of the fall and, it, and the whole creation has been subjected to futility because of our sin. And one of my favorite examples in, in the Bible is, is the children of Israel. The Bible talks about how they were so mistreated. I mean, they endured hardships that, that you and I couldn't even imagine. They were slaves, and they were given quotas to meet that they had no possible way of meeting. And then when they didn't meet them, they were beaten with rods. Yeah, and if you read that story in context, it has to do with the fact that Moses had arrived after God commissioned him to go to Pharaoh and say to Pharaoh, let my people go. Yeah. It was after that little showdown that that thing happened. They did, by the way, suffer terribly under, uh, you know, in slavery in Egypt in many different ways. But you kind of leave in important details of the story out. And they were so mistreated. But here's the thing. That did not go unnoticed by God Almighty. He saw every tear they cried. He saw their affliction. He heard their cry and, and their prayer to be delivered. 
And then you know the story that, that God sent the ten plagues uh, upon the land, the, the locusts, the disease, the boils, the flies, all of that, until Pharaoh finally said, all right, I've had it, enough. You know, go, get out of here. Which, here's the thing, if the story would have ended there, that would be amazing. I mean, they cried out, God heard their prayer, but see, it doesn't end there. Check this out in Exodus 12, 35 and 36. Now, this is right when they get ready to go, that they've been released, and Pharaoh says to them, okay, go. It says, and the people of Israel asked the Egyptians for clothing and articles of silver and gold. The Lord caused the Egyptians to look favorably on the Israelites, and they gave the Israelites whatever they asked for. I mean, can you just imagine this? I mean, here, these are their slave owners, These are the people who had beaten them, who had put them through horrific situations, who had just so mistreated them. And now they're getting ready to leave. And they say to their slave owners, hey, you see that Gucci watch you're wearing there? Yeah, I would like that. And the Louis Vuitton purse. Yeah, can I have that as well? Because I think those two would really go well together. And, oh, was that a Maserati I saw on the driveway? I would look so sweet driving down the road in that. Where where are the keys? In fact, I tell you what, I have a U-Haul truck. Let me just bring it around and park it at the front door, and then let's you and I, let's just go room to room, and I'll pick out and take whatever I want. And you could just see God's heart for us because God is always wanting to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. And you see, God's idea of restoration is different than yours or mine. Our idea of restoration is the same as what the insurance industry would tell us or what the legal industry would would tell us, which is the same as what the dictionary, how the dictionary defines restoration, which is the act or process of returning something to its original condition. So if somebody backed into your car and damaged the car door, your expectation would be you would take your car to the repair shop, you would get an estimate, and you, your expectation would be that their insurance or your insurance would bring that. Now, notice what he's doing here. Um, he's taking a historical narrative, which is a descriptive text, and what he's doing is basically turning this into there's a promise here in this story of how God treated the Israelites and by the fact that God made the Egyptians favorably, favorably disposed towards them, that they ended up, you know, in a sense, looting the uh, the Egyptians, that somehow this is now normative. God wants you to loot the world or something. Yeah, he's going to restore things. And, and yeah, the problem here is where is the promise that says that God's going to make, you know, non-Egyptians so favorably disposed that we're going to, you know, grab the loot of the world kind of thing? Yeah, see, descriptive text without an explicit promise that applies universally, big problem here. Door back to its original condition, right? Or if you had something stolen from you, let's say you you, uh, had a watch stolen and the sheriff's office found it at a pawn shop, your expectation is that they would return the watch to you that you had lost. But you see, that's not how God sees it. In the Bible, in fact, it talks about how if somebody steals something, they have to pay back double. Here in Exodus 22.1, it says, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. In Proverbs, it even says seven times. And you see, that's God's idea of restoration. He's Well, wait a second. That actually falls under kind of like the civil code portion of the Mosaic Covenant. 
okay, talking about restoration. It would be kind of like this, you know, you know that portion of the old of the Old Testament. You can kind of think of the Old Testament, you know, the the old the Mosaic Covenant. There are you know kind of three major headings that things fall under, and uh, you know you can talk about civil law. These are laws that pertain to the uh, the nation state of Israel in in ancient times. Uh, if you're a citizen of Israel, these this is what governs civil affairs. Uh, and you'll notice though that there's no distinction between church and state in the uh, in the Mosaic Covenant. Um, then you've got ceremonial laws pertaining to the sacrifices at the temple, uh, and then you also got uh, moral law uh, that you know that you know you know the, like the Ten Commandments, right? So it's weird. He's now quoting from, or at least referencing, the civil law portion of the Mosaic Code as if somehow this reflects universally some kind of. Um, universal law by which God governs the universe. See, uh, hey, you have to, if you've stolen something, you've got to restore it sevenfold. So what does that mean? Well, you know, Satan, he's stolen something from you, right? Yeah, uh-huh. So God's going to restore it to you, you know, sevenfold. Yeah, did you lose your childhood? Did Satan steal it? Well, God's going to restore it sevenfold. Yeah, this is completely not paying attention to context, but not only that, the genre of the uh, of the portion of scripture that you're looking at. He's not going to just bring you back to what you had before. He's not going to bring you back to the same place. He's going to do exceptionally more than all you can ask or imagine. It- yeah, and misquoting Ephesians at this point isn't going to help you. In fact, if you think about it this way, if somebody does you a disservice, if somebody harms you, or if you lose something, they are actually doing you a favor. Because they are putting you in a position where you can receive double or four times or five times or even seven times what was lost or stolen. Uh, (laughs) Oh, man. Notice he's not actually exegeting any biblical text. This is a theology that's basically spun out of somebody's head with out-of-context proof texts that ignore you know, what's going on in any of the portions of Scripture that he's even trying to reference. This is a mess. I know years ago, uh, I was in the business world, and uh, our daughter, Caroline, was, was in middle school, and, and it was right in the, in the heart of the recession, and, and things were just tough for us. Things were, were hard for us financially, just like many of you. you we, we all went through that. And, and, uh, but it seemed like for Caroline, the recession hit her especially hard. And she was in middle school, and it seemed like we were always saying no to her. And at the time, she was in Irish dancing, and we had to take her out of that. And, and we were always going to her and saying, well, Caroline, I'm sorry. We just can't afford this anymore. And she kept coming to us and saying, well, hey, my friends are doing this. Can I do it? And, and I don't know. It just seemed to be a really hard time for her. And she was in middle school, and, and at the time, her class did this project where they had these eggs, and they hatched. So is this a testimonial here? That, oh, the sevenfold returning of things that are stolen. <laughs> what, what was stolen from you during the recession? God's got to restore it now sevenfold. Is this some kind of testimonial to this false teaching? Oh, the testimonial proves that it's true, you know. The eggs out to, to chickens, and at the end, the kids all got to take home a, a baby chicken. <laughs> which sounds really sweet and amazing. The only problem is, you see, we live in Lakewood Ranch. And, and we really like our rules in Lakewood Ranch. And trust me, one of those rules is no farm animals allowed. 
I mean, they're very strict. And, and in fact, we have an inspector that will drive around every quarter and inspect our home just to make sure we're in compliance with the rules. So I come home from work one day, and Julia greets me at the door, and she's like, honey, your daughter is back there in her room crying. And I'm like, you know, now what? What, what, what's wrong with, with what happened now? And she explains to me the story of, of the teacher and, and the chickens. And she said, you know, I told her, she said, I, we just can't keep that here. It, it's just not possible. And so I walked back to her room and knocked on the door. And, and I hear this. And I go in and I, I sit down beside her and, and she's crying. And I rub her back and I'm like, what is wrong, princess? What, what's wrong with my girl? And she said, Mom says we have to give away sunshine. And I'm like, oh, great. Now the thing's got a name, you know. It's no longer a chicken, but now it, it has turned into a pet. And I just, at that moment, something came over me. And I was just like, no, no. I had had enough. I thought, I am not having one more conversation with my daughter about what she can't do, what we don't have, what we lost. I'm like, I am done. And I said, Caroline, we are going to keep that chicken. And she looked at me and she's like, really? And her mom was in the... Oh, this is such an inspiring story. I mean, I feel my heart just warming up. And, and, and it's as if I'm drawing closer to God because of this heartwarming story about sunshine, the chicken. In the room and I heard her say, really? And I'm like, yes. Really, we're going to. I don't know how, but somehow we are going to figure out a way to keep this chicken because I had had it. And let me tell you, I built the Taj Mahal of chicken coops. I mean, I built this thing in the backyard. Nobody had any idea that we had a chicken back there. And in fact, every time the inspector would, would drive by, it felt like we had Anne Frank living in our backyard. So it'd be like, Shh, tell. Wait, tell the chicken to be quiet. <laughs> it's so funny. But you know what? I think there are some of you in here today, and today is your day to say enough already. Yeah. Enough is enough. Yeah, you bet. Just say enough is enough. You, it's about time that you started, you know, saying enough so that you can, you know, if I say enough, does that is that the thing that kicks off the restoration? So I, I can't have restoration until I say enough is enough. Is that how that works? Where is that in the Bible? I think there are some of you in here today that need to say, you know what? My marriage may not look all that great today, but I know God is going to change everything. God is going to turn it all around. I think there are some of you in here today that, are, are, that need to say, you know what? I may have been sick for years, but today it ends. Today I'm going to believe that God is going to turn it all around. That he's yeah, so I mean if you got some kind of like really long-term illness that's, you know, getting the best of you, you all you got to do is say enough is enough. I believe God's going to turn it around. Yeah. Uh-huh. He's going to do for me what he says in his word. Or my bank account may not look all that great today, but I know any day now God is going to turn things around. Any day now, man. Just cuz I said so, it's going to happen. Because you see, here's the thing. You are only one date night away from having a really amazing marriage. You are only one doctor's visit away from getting a really great report. You are only one job interview away from getting that job you always dreamed of. Really, and is God like a genie now? Um, which biblical text 
make these promises on behalf of God? Because you're making these promises now on behalf of God. Mm-hmm. A phone call can turn everything around. Everything can change in a moment. You know, I was talking to a, a guy once, and I was telling him what I'm sharing with you is that God wants to restore, and, and I was sharing God's heart, and he said, yeah, that's all great, Pastor Mark, and that's all wonderful, but there's just one problem. He said, because you see, what I lost are memories. I, I, I lost memories, and he said, you know, I can't go back in time, and, and what I've lost is, has been lost forever. And I said, well, that's true. You can't go back in time. But what I also know is true is that God can fulfill his word in a way that he can and that you can believe God for even better memories in the future. You can believe God for memories that are twice as good, four times, five times, seven times as good. Believing God for memories that are, man, way better than your other memories. Yeah. What are you talking about? This has nothing to do with biblical Christianity. As what you lost. And see, here's the other thing. This life we have here on earth, this isn't the only life there is. We have all of eternity to look forward to. And in fact, eternity calls this life that we're living now a vapor. It's like less than a split second in comparison with eternity. So when you look at it from that perspective, whatever we lost here is even less than that split second. And will just pale in comparison with everything we will receive in eternity. Yeah, now that... that that's probably true. In fact, I would even say, yeah, that's that's actually a biblical argument, sort of. I mean, at least the conclusion, you can actually argue it from the biblical text. The uh, question I have for you then is, how does God go about restoring us so that we can have eternal life? Hmm? So he was saying, yeah, that's good. Okay, I'm tracking with you, but but there's another problem. And he said, here it is. He said, what happened was my fault. He said, I lost out on memories because of a decision that I made. You mean a sin. Maybe we're going to hear the gospel. I mean, who knows? I mean, we hear it so rarely from any of these seeker-driven guys. I made a choice, and because of that choice I made, I lost everything. And I said, well, if that's true, then you are in luck because you are the exact type of person that Jesus came to die for. Okay, we have a reference to the gospel, something we rarely hear. You are the exact type of person that Jesus hung on a cross for. In fact, check this out in Mark 2, 17. It says, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, got to say this, got to say this. In the middle of this mess of a sermon, we have something we rarely hear anymore, a clear presentation of the gospel, at least something to do with sin and forgiveness and restoration in that sense. So, I mean, this is a rare and auspicious moment, but here's the issue here at this point. Um, normally, I would play our um, our gospel nugget soundbite, but this isn't really a nugget because he's made it a main point. The issue here is that the gospel is appearing in the midst of false doctrine. And as a result of it, the false doctrine is is going to basically take away from the true that he's saying here. And since there's promises being made that God has not made, in the midst of it, what's going to end up happening is kind of this. So let's say that the, the person, you know, everyone listening to this is going, oh, 
all I got to do is say enough is enough. And I'm going to now I've, I'm going to have a great marriage because I you know, God says that Satan has to restore what he's stolen from me sevenfold. So I, I, I'm at the end of the sermon, I'm going to pray the prayer and I'm going to, yeah, that's right. And, and then the person goes home and, you know, and you know, with that new boldness and confidence goes to his spouse and, and says, honey, this is, you know, we're going to have a great marriage kind of thing. And the spouse says, yeah, no, while you were at church, I was, uh, t- you know, putting the signature on the papers here and, uh, here, here's the divorce papers in the guy, uh, uh, what, 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 what? And, uh, and so, you know, and, and then that marriage doesn't actually get restored. It ends in divorce in the midst of all of that then was also the promise of, well, restoration that Christ bled and died for sinners. Well, here's the issue then. Since the promise that the guy made regarding his marriage being restored didn't pan out and the marriage wasn't restored, it ended in divorce. Do you think the guy's going to also believe that Jesus really, that the promise of the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross is going to actually be valid too? Yeah, see, when you start make, you know, making promises for God that he never made and then mixing them with the promises that he has made, what ends up happening is, is that the, the real promises become disbelieved when it's found out that the false promises are that as well, false promises. So, yeah, we got a major problem here. This is why you don't want to mix false doctrine and true, true doctrine. You're only supposed to teach what's in accord with sound doctrine. This is a command given by God to pastors. If you're in here today and you're like, that was me. I lost something, but it it was because of a bad decision or a poor choice that I made. Then you're in luck because you are the exact person that Jesus hung on a cross for. You are the exact person that Jesus came to, to restore. So how does it happen? So how does God restore? If it's in his heart, if he wants to do that, how does it happen? Well, I believe that there are primarily three ways that we experience God's restoration. And the first one is the same way he does everything else, and that is God's restoration happens through faith. God's restoration happens through faith. Now, this is true regarding our salvation, absolutely, you know, by grace through faith. Correct. So if I were to ask you a question, how many here believe that Jesus is who he says he was, that he died on a cross three days later, rose from the grave, and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty? How many would raise their hand and say yes? Yeah, of course. Awesome. But then I could say to you, well, how do you know? You weren't there. You didn't see it happen. You didn't see him hang on the cross. You didn't look in the grave. You would say, I believe through faith. I believe that what happened, happened. Many- yeah, I believe, I have faith that the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' resurrection are historically true. Yes, by faith. If you would say, I've seen him work in, in my life and, and I've experienced his miracles. Yeah, and then that's the wrong place to look, by the way. Stop looking at yourself. Whether or not Christianity is true has nothing to do with whether or not you've experienced miracles. The question is, was the tomb empty on on Easter Sunday? That's the question. Was the tomb empty? Was you know, did Jesus really rise from the grave bodily? And this is outside of you, not inside of you. You know, looking looking and saying, "Well, hey, I've had miracles happen in my life. Look at my transformation of my life. You know, I was I was a slobbering drunk, and now I'm sober all the time. See, it's a miracle. That means Jesus is true. Yeah, the problem is that type of so-called miracle 
um, also happens to people in Islam, Buddhism, atheists in, you know, in, you know, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous have something along those lines happen to them. So we got a problem here. That's not what you want to do. Faith, when we're talking about salvation by grace through faith, we're, we're believing by faith something that we can't see, and we're trusting that the the eyewitness testimony of Christ's resurrection from the grave is true. And if you were to take the time to actually look at the evidences for it as well, you'd find, yeah, it's a rock-solid case. The tomb really was empty. You see, God could show up here, and how many know that he could shake this place, and there wouldn't be an atheist, an agnostic, an unbeliever. God could show up on the scene, and everyone would believe. And so you ask, well, well, then why doesn't he? Because he doesn't want to. You see, faith is a big deal to God. Faith is huge to him. And faith is how we obtain things. I love Hebrews 11.1, 1, which says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the bridge between you and God's promise to restore. Faith is when you say, I don't get it. I don't understand. I don't know how God's going to do it. But I believe that he is. You know, God's restoration doesn't come from sitting around and, and wishing things were different. Wishing- yeah, what kind of restoration are we talking about now? The restoration of the relationship between God and myself by what Christ has done or, or some kind of promise of restoration of, you know, my memories, that they'll be better, that my finances will be restored, things like that. And you had this or wishing that that hadn't happened. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do. But that's not how restoration comes. Restoration doesn't come by talking to your friends and talking about the good old days. Oh, back in the day, I had this, or before the recession, I had this, and and I once was was this. That's not how restoration happens. Again, nothing wrong with that. We, We all say that. Restoration happens when you believe. Restoration happens when you say, okay, God, I'm taking you at your word. I believe that you're going to do for me and your word what it says it's, it's what it says you're going to do. That's right. And then we need a sure and certain promise. The thing that we can hang our hats on is that Christ has promised that he has bled and died for our sins and rose again on the third day for our justification, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them, right? That's what those are sure and certain promises. So we're promised a forgiveness of sins and a right standing before God. Are we promised that God will restore sevenfold anything that's stolen from us? No, we're not. That's actually not in the scriptures as, as a promise for us. Not here and now. We're not promised that we're going to have health and divine wealth. And, you know, we're, uh, we're not promised that we're going to, uh, that our marriage is going to be rosy and sunny and great. Before I was was in ministry, this was years ago, and I was in the business world. I loved going on cruises. I mean, cruising was was my favorite vacation. Still is. I just absolutely loved it. And and we went all the time. And and then the the recession came, and and it just it just wasn't a possibility for us. And and again, just like many of you, we we suffered financial loss. And please tell me you're not going to tell us that. God restored the ability for you to go on cruises again because God's word does not promise that. And just it just wasn't a possibility. And it took everything I could do just to, to pay the mortgage and, 
and put food on the table and, and keep Caroline and her chicken happy. So, you know, going on a cruise just, just wasn't an option for us. And my parents were going on a cruise, and they asked me to, to take them down to the port of Miami, so I did. I took them down there and, and got them on the ship. And after they got on board, I just stood there for a second. I stood there and, and looked at the big cruise ships and, and the hustle and bustle and, and everything that was going on, and I just stood there for a moment, and I was like, you know what? This used to be my life. I remember this. I remember what it was like to come here and, and say to Julia, hey, you got the luggage, you know, you got your passport, and the, where are the kids, and let's get on board. And I remember this life. But it had been so long that I'd forgotten about it. And I said in that moment, I said, Lord, why can't I go on a cruise? I mean, the reason was obvious. I, I had no money. But, but as I said that to the Lord, I was like, I was like, God, what is money to you? You own everything anyway. And what is it to you? I said, Lord, restore. Lord, I want you to get me on one of these ships. I have no idea how you're going to do it. But Lord, I'm asking you to restore what has been lost. Lord, restore what has been stolen. And just after I prayed that prayer, I turned around to walk back to my car. And at that moment, my, my cell phone rang. And I pulled it out, and it was my, my parents. And I said, hey, what's going on? And it was my mom. And she said, hey, Mark, we're here. And I'm like, yeah, everything great. Yeah, everything is awesome. She said, hey, I was just talking to your father. And we would like to take you and Julia on a cruise. We know you used to cruise a lot, and, and we would love to, to pay and have you guys join us on, on a cruise. So as soon as we get back, when you pick us up, let's figure out when the four of us can go on a cruise. And I was like, Lord, you are so good. You are so amazing. But see, here's the thing. It didn't stop there. A few days after that, I get another phone call from a friend of mine, Pastor Derek Fry. He lives in, in Boston, pastors a church up there, and his wife, Stacy. And he's like, hey, Mark, Stacy and I, we have this cruise, and we can't use it. And it's transferable. So would you and Julia like to go? You see, that's, that's God restoring. See, the problem is God has not, has not promised this kind of restoration. And if you don't receive this kind of restoration, are you going to believe that God also forgives sins because of what Christ has done on the cross? Nope, not at all. Man, this is a problem. Mixing truth and error, never a good thing. It'll, it'll always end up eating away at the truth in the long run. We continue. And I'm like, this is awesome. And I remember going home that day and, and talking to Joy. I'm like, how are we going to take all these cruises? You know, how are we going to do all this? We only have so much vacation time. And, and so I said, my parents are coming back in four days. They want to take us. And so now we got this thing. And, but you see, that's how God does it. He's always going. To that's how God does it. No, God has not promised to restore stolen cruising from you. Do immeasurably more, not just what we expect or think. And it's going to happen through faith. Number two, restoration happens when we repent. Proverbs 20. <laughs> right. Re repentance is part of, if you would, uh, the order salutis, if you would. Um, but the issue here is, <laughs> what did you repent of? In order for your cruising to be restored to you, what was you? What was your big moment of repentance, Lord? I repent, so restore my cruising. Twenty-eight, thirteen. I love this scripture because it's really simple, and 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 I, I need things to be simple. It says, "People who conceal their sins will not prosper, 
but if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. Mercy, not cruises. So let's just break this down because, again, this is a, a really simple verse and it tells us exactly what we need to do. So the weird part is that this is a sermon where we're hearing about sin, repentance, mercy, Christ on the cross. But it's all the other stuff that's totally convoluting it. It first starts by saying people who conceal their sins will not prosper. But if they confess, now let's just stop right there. What you have to do is you have to say, I made a mistake. I was wrong. I made a mistake. How about I sinned? I should not have done that. It was wrong of me. You don't have to say, I feel bad, or I didn't mean to, or I didn't know this was going to happen. That's not confessing. That's not admitting your mistake. It's when you say, I was wrong. Let's say, for example... You're selling a house, and you know this house has a leaky roof, but you don't disclose that, and you put it on the, the contract. You have to say, that was wrong of me. I knew the roof had a leak. That was wrong. I am sorry. I should not have done that. That was a mistake. Now, let's keep reading. Next three words say, turn from them. What that means is repent. It's as though you're walking in, yeah, that's right. in one direction and then you stop and you turn around and you head the exact opposite direction. Let's go back to our example. You have to say, I was sorry. I knew that was misleading. I will never do that again. That was wrong of me. I will never lie to make a sale. I don't care what the consequences are. I'm going to be honest. If I know something is wrong with a house, I am going to disclose. Now, this technically, he's doing a little bit of confusing. There's Repentance is a change of mind, and bearing fruit in keeping with repentance is the action that follows. He's kind of squishing the two together, mashing them up, if you would, and, and, and that's, uh, that's an inaccurate way to talk about these things. Close it. You have to repent. Turn the other way. Then what does it say? It says, we will receive mercy. Now, this is the part we all want, right? This is the, the sweet, spot, sweet spot. Here's the definition of mercy. Mercy is not receiving what you deserve. That's correct. That's ding, 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 right. That's what the cross is all about. Okay, mercy is not receiving what you deserve. I lied. I made a mistake. I'm sorry. I should have said the, the roof leaked. I will never do that again. I don't care what the consequences are. Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, what I deserve is to lose my, my real estate license. What I deserve is to get fired. What I deserve is for this contract to be null and void. Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, may I keep my real estate license. Lord, I need this job. Lord, I need this contract to go through. Lord, have mercy on me. Resolve this problem, this, this situation that, that I have caused. You know, we all go to the Lord. We all want mercy. We all go to Him. But the thing is, we can't skip steps one and two. We can't skip the first step, which is confess. You have to admit, I made a mistake. Then number two, you have to repent and say, I will never do this again. Okay. Um, again, my question is, what did you repent of in order to receive the restoration of cruising again? Because you keep throwing these weird things in here with stuff that 
in some senses right, but you're mixing it with stuff that's like way off. Do you know that God is actually more interested in your heart than he is in your sin? God cares about what is in here, what is going on in here. I mean, look at David. Right, out of the heart comes all kinds of sin, Jesus talks about, yeah. But in the Bible, my goodness, the guy killed somebody. But yet the Bible still calls David a man after God's own heart. God cares about what's on the inside. God cares about your heart. And here's the key. You cannot go around with a chip on your shoulder. You cannot go around blaming God, saying how unfair life is. Oh, I wish this had happened, and, and if only this had happened. No, you have to forgive. Number three, restoration happens when we forgive. And just a heads up, this is a tough one, okay? One and two, we're okay, but this one, I'm just, I'm just warning you. As we dig into this, this is the toughest one to do. Because unforgiveness can be the biggest roadblock, the biggest hurdle to us receiving God's restoration. Not forgiving people doesn't hurt them. It just hurts you. In fact, most of the time... So unforgiveness keeps me from being able to go on a cruise. They don't even know, even care if you've forgiven them or not. But it does for you. It can have a huge impact on, on your life and God's ability to restore in fact, it's, it's just like a, uh, a garden hose. You know, you ever plug the garden hose into the faucet and turn the faucet on, you go to the other end and, and no water comes out and you're like, what's wrong with this thing? And you go back and you see, oh, there's a kink in the line. And you undo the kink and the water flows. Well, some of you have a kink in your line and it's called unforgiveness. And you have to forgive those who, who have hurt you. Matthew 5.44 says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And that prayer... Now, what's weird about all of this, well, do I want to call it gospel? It's gospel stuff. All of this gospel stuff that we're hearing from Pastor Matir, the problem is, is it's coming off as law. And you're going, well, yeah, I think you're right, Chris, but what do you mean by that? Well, here's the idea. The law is something I have to do. If I do this, then God does that. If I obey, then God rewards. That's law. Um, the um, the way he's doing this presentation, there's gospel-ish type of stuff in here. But the way he's presenting it is as the thing that we fulfill in order to receive so he's presenting the law or the gospel in a very law kind of way. Weird. That's not a, a get em God prayer, all right? That's not a, oh, Lord, may they experience a total wrath of your anger. May it come to bear on them and their household. No, that's not what this scripture is talking about. In fact, you know how you, ha how you know. Have you read any of the imprecatory Psalms? Oh, if you've truly forgiven somebody... It's when you, you hear something good has happened to them and you're genuinely excited for them. It's not when you hear something good has happened to them and you're like, oh, they got a promotion. Yeah, isn't that just great? Oh, they got a raise too. Oh, God bless them. That's just dandy. Mm -hmm. So happy for them. No, if that's how you feel, you haven't truly forgiven them. 
or when you hear something bad has happened to them, that, that you're not genuinely sorry that something bad has happened, that you're like, ooh, they got fired? Really? Oh, were you there? Did you, did you see them after it happened? Was it, was it ugly? Ugh, you know, I bet that was hard on them. Did you see how it went down? Did, did they send an email out and, and announce what had happened? Can you forward that email to me? Just, just so I can be praying for them. You know, I just, I just want to be praying for them. No, if that's how you feel about something bad that's happened to somebody who's done you wrong, you haven't forgiven them. Now, I know this is a tough thing. I know it's really easy for me to stand up here and to make jokes about it and all that, but I know some of you have really been hurt. Some of you have got a lot of pain in your heart, but we have to do it. We have to find a way to forgive. It is a big deal. Check out what Jesus says about forgiveness. Here in Matthew 6, 15, 6, 14 and 15, it says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But now listen to this. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Here it is again, Luke 6, 37. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Here it is again, Matthew 6, 12. This is the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. You know, we all want to be forgiven. We all expect forgiveness. But for whatever reason, whenever the shoe is on the other foot, it's so hard for us to forgive. And so Bayside, I just want to encourage you today. I believe that God is here and that he wants to... You know what's missing in all of this is a really clear in-depth explanation of how Christ forgives us. You know, Jesus, you know, made that point when in the parable of the uh, of the, uh, the guy who owed the king a gazillion dollars, you know, that particular uh, parable, you know, makes this point. You were forgiven much. The one who is forgiven much is to forgive. Um yeah, and so you really want you don't want to turn the gospel into the law and the way you avoid doing that is by preaching the gospel in its depth and its magnitude and its clarity and then from there the forgiveness that comes from Christ flows from Christ to us and from us to our neighbors who sin against us but he's just you know strip mining here and turning the law, the gospel in, into the law in a way you got to do this you got to do that you this and if you do that then this yeah this is basically gospel with a heavy emphasis on law store everything that's been lost everything that's been stolen everything that's been broken and he does that through three ways number one through faith when we believe that god will do for us what he promised in his word Number Q sappy music. Sappy music is an emotional manipulation technique designed to create the false impression that God the Holy Spirit is now descending on the audience, getting ready to do business with them, you know, so they can make decisions and things. Two, when we repent, when we turn from our sins, when we confess and turn the other way. And number three, when we forgive those who have caused us great harm. It's only then that God makes the exchange that it talks about in Isaiah 61.3. Bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Let me pray for you. Okay, we're done. You don't get to pray for us. So 
you heard something well it was there was something of the gospel in this which is rare nowadays extremely rare but the problem also was that it was mixed with a lot of error i mean a lot of error you know you know it promises that god never made you know promise to restore your your uh, your inability to cruise now you know you used to be able to go on cruises and now god's going to restore that make it so you can go cruising again now that god does not promise that and then the promises then are contingent upon your keeping particular steps. Everything presented then in a, the form of law, the thing you must do to fulfill so that you can then get the promise. Well, if that's the way you're presenting it, it really isn't a promise. It's something that you've earned by being obedient. Yeah, this, yeah. <clears throat> Definitely some major problems with that. What did you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>